This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The passive overconsumption model predicts the ketogenic diet folks, they should have eaten many more calories, gained a bunch of weight. Um, and the other carbohydrate insulin models would suggest that the high glycemic High carb diet should have caused these big insulin excursions and, and those folks should have gotten hungrier and therefore eat more calories and gain more weight. And the answer was none of them were true. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our episode with one of my favorite scientists in the world of nutrition, Dr. Kevin Hall, who is the senior investigator at the National Institute of Health, where he's the section chief of integrative physiology. In today's episode, we discuss the phenomenal research Kevin's done evaluating how different diets impact energy balance and body weight. We discuss the carbohydrate insulin model and what studies Kevin's research group has done to evaluate it. We talk about his research evaluating low-carb versus low-fat diets, different myths and misconceptions about both over time, and what questions remain about nutrition, obesity, and weight loss. We discuss the latest fad trend of using continuous glucose monitors in individuals without diabetes and how mechanistic speculation but not rigorous evidence drives it. And for anyone that's had anxiety about eating an apple or banana because you're worried they have too many carbs, this episode is definitely for you. So have a listen and enjoy. To touch on one of uh, the other most popular topics that everyone wanted me to ask you about, focusing on just some of your other metabolic work on some of the research you've done looking at how carbohydrates versus fat intake in the diet results in whether people are eating more, eating less, appetite, different sort of um, factors with energy expenditure. And so I wanted you just to give a little brief overview of what the carbohydrate insulin model was proposed as and kind of what your work has shown going forward. Sure. Maybe even stepping back a little bit um, to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, why did I get involved in this in the first yeah, place? Yeah, absolutely. Because I kind of alluded to that earlier on. I, I sort of came into this field from a very different background. And um, I was just really fascinated by this idea that I'd heard a lot of people in nutrition talking about that, you know, it doesn't matter where your calories come from, right? A calorie is a calorie. Um, it's all about calories in, calories out. That's all that really matters. And it just seemed just too simplistic and too naive and we love dichotomies right we love it yeah we just we love as a society i think it gives us comfort to think that things are just this rule right and and there was this just this idea that it didn't matter what calories you were kind of consuming that your body would respond similarly 
I, and it just didn't make any sense, right? I mean, how could it possibly be that your body would respond the same way to a calorie of sugar that it does to, you know, a calorie of olive oil? It doesn't make any sense. And of course it doesn't, right? It responds completely differently. But this idea kind of goes back, you know, to middle of the 19th century where people were trying to understand how animals and people respond to different diets and how does their body's metabolism respond differently to different diets. And there's, so there was a lot that was known about these things. And kind of towards the end of the 19th century, this guy named Max Rubner basically had done these experiments where he took, again, you're not going to like to hear this, but he took <laughs> dogs and he would starve them. And then he would give them back some sugar or he would give them back some lard. Um, and just to see as they were wasting away, how much sugar would it take to kind of keep their body fat compared to how much lard would it take? to keep their body fat from falling at the same rate. And he's the one who discovered that, well, it had been previously known in other experiments from his mentor that you needed like more than twice as much sugar to have the same effect as the lard. Um, but he went and said, okay, well, what happens if we burn the sugar? How many calories do we get out of the sugar versus how many calories do we get out of the lard? And he found that, well, you get about twice the amount of calories out of the lard as compared to the sugar. And it turned out that that matching inside the dog's body was calorie for calorie. It didn't matter whether it came from the sugar or from the fat. Somehow the body of the dog was able to adapt its metabolism to preserve body fat, regardless of whether or not you'd given it sugar or fat in the diet. And that is the basis for a calories a calorie. It had nothing to do with appetite. It had nothing to do with how the body does that. It was just an observation that for some reason, that Rubner had no idea about, and people didn't really have any idea about for many more decades later, that the body could somehow adapt to these different macronutrients in our diet and somehow have very similar effects on body fat when you control for cow. So when I started my lab at the NIH, I decided I was going to build a mathematical model of that. I wanted to understand what were the changes inside the body, not the dog, but the human, um, that was giving rise to this phenomenon that I could swap out calories from carbs versus fat and to some extent protein and have relatively similar effects on body composition. But somehow inside the body, you had to be doing a lot of adaptations in order to allow that to happen. And what were those adaptations? And so, you know, how did the nova lipogenesis change? How did gluconeogenesis change? How did, you know, the different fuels that were being burned change inside different tissues in order to kind of give rise to this effect? Unfortunately, you know, over the beginning of the 20th century, all the way up and, you know, some of this work still continues, a lot was known about the physiology and endocrinology that's responsible for these processes. So it's a really interesting and deep question about how that works. And, and so I was designing some experiments to test that and basically show that Max Rubner, he was kind of right, but not exactly right. So we designed this experiment in humans to basically do the reverse of what he did, which was, you know, give calories to starving dogs. We decided we're going to take um, people with obesity and cut calories only from carbs or only from fat and see how their bodies responded differently and actually designed the experiment based on our modeling, to see if we could actually tease out a difference to show that a calorie wasn't a calorie, that there was actually, it was close, but not quite right. And, um, and that was our first experiment that we designed. I pulled it so, up too now. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's great. Okay. So, but then this got us into all of the diet debates about people who were rightfully saying, well, all you folks who are talking about a calorie is a calorie. Um, it doesn't account for appetite changes. It doesn't account for the fact that your body is doing something completely different internally when it's metabolizing carbohydrates versus fats versus proteins. So how could it possibly be true? Therefore, we can just throw out all the old stuff because it's obviously wrong. And it's, again, the sort of dichotomous thinking of it's either all right or all wrong. What can we take from one? You know, my, my thought is, you know, you, you identify the stuff that's wrong, sure. But there's also something right there as well, probably. Right. And we have to take all the data as a whole and try to kind of move the field forward. At the time that we were designing that experiment, the 
Atkins diet had resurged in, in its popularity. And the idea was that um, in contrast to what Rubner had suggested, that in fact, if you were to cut carbs in people's diets, you would get many more calories burned by the body and you would preferentially lose body fat because insulin would be low. By the way, I want to admit first that I 100% believed this. I okay. totally, I was a true, I, I believed it. I mean, I never went on a low carb spree, Atkins spree when I was younger, but like, I remember growing up thinking like, oh, low carb is like, that's the diet for weight loss. Like it was very, just like, it was super prominent and it continues to be, but yeah. Yeah. See, I'm showing my age because I remember very well when the low fat phase was, was oh, super prominent. Right. So that yeah. was when I sort of grew up in the you know, the 80s, where it was wells. just like, yeah, snack wells, cookies <laughs> in the 90s, and everybody was like low fat everything. I remember before I had any sort of idea about nutrition or metabolism, I was just a physics student. I was like, wow, you know, icing has like no fat in it, yeah. right? So if I, I just kind of, if I ate icing, I could never get fat because it has no fat. Like, <laughs> but that was, that was the extent of the you thinking. Among unlimited people, snack wells, right? cookies, and not gain yeah. a pound. Yeah, exactly. Great. <laughs> So clearly misguided, but the the idea was that, you know, somehow if you were to cut carbs and insulin goes down, that your body would burn more calories. And Atkins' original book from the 70s was the high calorie way to stay thin forever, basically, that your body would burn hundreds of more calories on a low carb diet compared to an alternative, but it had never been directly observed. So yeah, so we I started to get into this and we did the study where we just cut carbs from people's diets, keeping fat and protein constant versus the same people in random order, just cutting fat from their diet, keeping carbs and protein constant. And we just started that study and we got a, a, a visit from um, a talk, a special talk at the NIH uh, from Gary Taubes had come to visit. And I had a chance to kind of chat with him afterwards. And I asked him to predict the results of the experiment because we didn't, you know, we just started it. Our model made one prediction and I just, you know, wanted to know what, what his prediction was. And his prediction at the time was, of course, he was like, well, the calories aren't the thing that matters. So it's, it's the carbs and the insulin. And, um, you know, if, if really carbs are cut and insulin goes down, then that's the one that's going to lead to the most fat loss. And of course, that's, kind of based on that line of thinking. That's that's the logical conclusion. Um, and of course, that's exactly the opposite of what happened, right? So we found a very, very tiny difference in these groups, but because they were all people who stayed with us for a pair of two-week periods on our metabolic wards, and we tracked every morsel of food that they ate, and we had them staying in their respiratory chambers. So 24 hours a day, we could measure how much carbs they were burning and how much fat they were burning and how much protein they were burning. We could detect a very, very slight benefit to the reduced fat diet compared to the reduced carb diet, despite only the reduced carb diet leading to a decrease in daily insulin secretion and a shift in which fuels were being burnt to being burning more fat. So that was the kind of the first time we sort of got into this, this um, issue of, well, there's a clear prediction of the, if you have this idea that insulin is the dominant hormone that is really the primary driver of how much fat is either being stored or released, and everything else plays a secondary subsidiary role, then clearly whatever diet changes insulin the most is going to concomitantly either change body fat for accumulation or body fat for reduction and two diets that have the same number of calories um, that vary in their insulin secretion, well, there's a clear prediction. And the fact that we were able to observe a difference, um, but it was in exactly the opposite direction of that prediction suggested, yeah, maybe things are a little bit more complicated, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that insulin's not important. Right. It clearly has a lot of the roles that that model of the universe uh, seems to think it does. I mean, it does do those things, but so do other things, right? Um, and that's the part that is the, when you kind of latch onto one sort of mechanistic theory of things to the exclusion of all others, and don't ask the question, well, what other factors can contribute to the very process that's at the core of my mechanistic theory? And ask the question of whether they can become dominant at certain times. Then, you know, 
maybe you're going to miss some things. And I think that this is an example of that. Perfect example of that. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Yeah, there's so many variables that go into like as you kind of briefly went over before, things with regards to appetite suppression or um, feeling more hungry, um, regulation of appetite, so much more goes into it than just insulin. Um, and so the interesting portion is that you've continued to study this and, and look at this and have, have generated some really interesting research kind of diving into this. And I would love for you to just kind of give everyone an overview of that too. Yeah, sure. So. And again, our studies, as you as you probably can understand, as I described, they are not intended to be kind of translated to, oh, this is the best diet. This is the diet I should be on. These are really physiological studies to basically see how the body adapts to these different changes. So we did another study. This time, this was funded by Gary Taubes' um, nonprofit organization called NUSI, Nutrition Science Initiative. Uh, it was a multi-site study. Basically, Two of the main criticisms of that first study I told you about were that we didn't really go low carb enough to get a, enough of a reduction in insulin secretion, and we didn't do it for long enough to kind of really see these effects. Um, so that's fine. And so we did this other study with three other research groups uh, around the country um, where we brought in 17 men, and they stayed with us for two months straight. For the first month, they consumed a sort of baseline high-carb, high-sugar diet, and they spent two days every week in our respiratory chambers. And at the end of that month, uh, they kind of we did the sort of baseline measurements. They spent two days in the respiratory chamber. That was sort of our fiducial marker that, we're, that we were going to use for our baseline. And then for the next month, we kept the calories constant in their diet, the protein constant, and we switched them to a 5% carb, 80% fat diet. And at the end of that month, Again, they spent two days in the respiratory chambers to see if, you know, now a month on a ketogenic diet, could we detect an increase in 24-hour energy expenditure? And the answer was no, there was no significant difference. But interestingly, at the onset of the ketogenic diet, we did see an increase. It kind of transiently goes up, and then it kind of relaxes back towards normal um, at the end of the month. Um, and we think that there's kind of some interesting things going on there. We're designing follow-up studies to look at what's happening inside the liver as you transition to a ketogenic diet. The liver actually does contribute quite a bit of calories, especially when it's doing things like gluconeogenesis and ketogenesis. And so we think there's some interesting physiology there, but it didn't really kind of go along with the idea that if you cut carbs to 5% or a month, that you are going to get these major increases in energy expenditure that a lot of folks, including Atkins, in his high-calorie way to stay thin forever would have promised. And the ballpark figures that we were getting at the time were things like 600 calories per day. Clearly, nothing like that right. happens. It's, you know, if you can see these effects, they're typically on the order of 100 calories a day. So very small effects, but still potentially important especially if they're all isolated to an organ like the liver, right? If that's 100 calories a day just happening inside the liver, then that's an interesting question because that could have important effects for you know, triglyceride accumulation and things like that in the liver, not at the whole body level. Then we went on and said, okay, well, maybe there's not huge effects going on in the, um, in the energy expenditure side of things um, or the body composition side of things because we saw slightly greater fat loss in the first one. In this other, the second study, we actually saw that the rate of fat loss slowed down a little bit on the induction of the ketogenic diet. We did a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the studies that had controlled calories um, and controlled protein, but swapped carbs and fat. Overall, very small effects um, on, on body fat, but basically, if anything, the, the lower fat diets were slightly superior uh, for loss of body fat, um, but again, tiny, tiny effect sizes, not clinically meaningful at all. 
And in terms of energy expenditure, there's been a little bit more debate about that because some folks use different methodologies and make certain assumptions and they get bigger effect sizes than I think they should. But energy expenditure is probably not substantially affected by carbs versus fat in the diet. So what about the appetite side of things? And so we designed a a study where we basically uh, had people, again, come stay with us at the NIH for a, a month. Um, and ran them over two on uh, for two weeks. They were given a diet that was uh, very low in carbs, ten percent carbs, seventy five percent fat, fifteen percent protein. Kind of modeled after the sort of well formulated ketogenic diets with most of the calories coming from animal based products because most of those diets are are like that. And then alternatively, uh, we used a seventy five percent carb, ten percent fat, fifteen percent protein plant-based diet, so a vegan diet, because that's where the whole food plant-based folks sort of, that's the only place where we can see people eating that low fat anymore, it seems. And so we basically designed that study to test kind of two different competing models for appetite regulation. One is um, the carbohydrate insulin model, which we kind of alluded to a little bit of, but I don't think I've spelled it out. But the idea there is that if you um, are eating too many carbs that is causing your insulin levels to to be too high, uh, particularly high glycemic index carbs, then that insulin level is going to keep your fat trapped inside the fat cells. It's going to starve other tissues of the body of fuels. The circulating fuels are going to be too low, and you're going to slow down your metabolic rate and be hungrier as a result. And I think it's important that you're you're diving into this because a lot of what we're doing on the podcast is trying to disseminate, um, you know, accurate scientific information because there's a lot of confusion on social media. And there is a huge in all different diet camps. Of course, there's plenty of myths and misinformation, but there's a huge, especially on Instagram, a, a big movement in women my age, millennials, and I'd say even, you know, Gen Z about how eating even fruit like spikes your glucose and someone without diabetes spikes your glucose, you know, and causes you to be more hungry. This idea of the carbohydrate insulin model has kind of persisted in in the fact that on social media, it's continued to make a fear about, you know, um, even healthy carbohydrates that have, you know, like fruits and vegetables and things like that, because people think any elevation of glucose will then um, trigger insulin, and then you will have an increased appetite, store more fat, et cetera. So that's why this is a really good for you to kind of spell out. Yeah. And I mean, I think that part of the problem and part of the allure of these these ideas is that they seem to make sense, right? And they right. have some sort of scientific foundation. I mean, carbs really do cause insulin to go up. I mean, Absolutely. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you about the results of that in our study. And they you know, they really do promote, you know, uh, uptake and storage of fat inside fat cells, and they really do prevent its release in some sense. Whether or not they have some of those other downstream consequences is a little bit more speculative, really. Does it really starve other tissues of fuel? Well, I don't think there's much evidence of that. Does it really increase appetite? Well, that's the reason we designed this study. Um, does it really slow down metabolic rate? Well, that was part of the results of the other study. And so 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 kind of picking apart, you know, you know, some really solid science, which is yes, carbs stimulate insulin secretion. Yes, insulin does have these effects. Does that mean that carbs are the only thing that stimulate insulin secretion? No. Does it mean that insulin is the only thing that promotes the uptake of fat into fat cells and prevents its release? No. Um, So it's kind of these truthful statements that are taken to mean that that's the only thing that's important, that that's going to be the dominant factor, and that there are then these downstream effects which are more speculative, but not necessarily mentioned that they're more speculative. Um, And then similarly, on the flip side, we have uh, the other model of, of overeating that we were testing in this case as well, which was that, well, energy density is the primary driver. We know that fat has twice the number of calories as carbs and protein, and carbs and protein are normally associated with a bunch of water inside food as well, So, whereas fat is obviously hydrophobic, and so it's a very concentrated amount of of, uh, calories. And so if you're eating a high-fat diet, like a ketogenic diet, it must promote people to overeat 
because the energy density of the food is so much higher, right? That was, again, part of the basis for this idea in the low-fat era. Well, if you cut totally. the fat in the diet, it costs a lot of energy to store carbs as fat. And, and not only that, for every bite of food that you eat, you'll be getting less calories because it's low-fat. So that's what a lot of people call the passive overconsumption model of obesity. And so if that model was true, then the ketogenic diet with the very high fat amount, um, especially when we kind of choose it to, to have you know, as much as 75% fat, um, it's going to have many more calories per gram than the other diet. And therefore, that's the diet that should cause people to overeat and gain weight. And so the design of the study was we've got these two diets, these two competing models of what's going to regulate people's appetite. One is dominated on carbs and insulin, and the other is dominated on fat and energy density. And so the whole and, food, just to s- s- jump in, so the whole food plant-based one you did was a high glycemic index sort of like plan diet. And then the animal-based um, high-fat, low-carb diet was essentially just the variability in saturated fat and everything like that was, it was higher in saturated fat than the, obviously the low fat plant-based diet, but it was mostly animal-based proteins. Yes, that's correct. Just because again, you know, those, those seem to be the most popular yes, kinds absolutely. of ketogenic diets, right? It's, it's hard. It, I mean, I think you did a self-experiment. I did. It's certainly possible to get a uh, ketogenic plant-based diet, but it's not easy. And it's, I would it's say very it's impossible if you if you don't use net carbohydrates, yes, right? So uh, it's very high fiber. And so you're eating a lot of total carbohydrates, but but yeah, anyway. So so we decided to use the sort of most ecologically relevant diets for people who are eating these types of ways and are both probably doing quite well from a health perspective on both of these kinds of diets. We probably could have done a little bit better in the you know monounsaturated fats versus saturated fats in the uh, ketogenic diet, but you know it's still not a terrible example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but but yeah, for the purpose of our study, it wasn't again to look at the health benefits of these diets. It was to test these two different models, right? right? Um, that the passive overconsumption model predicts the ketogenic diet folks they should have eaten many more calories, gained a bunch of weight, um, and the other carbohydrate insulin models would suggest that the high glycemic High carb diet should have caused these big insulin excursions and, and those folks should have got hungrier and therefore eat more calories and gain more weight. And the answer was none of them were true. <laughs> okay. Um, so both models are too simple to explain the way people eat. Big surprise, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the, the fun thing was, is that one model I would argue is more wrong than the other. So <laughs> the high carb diet did in fact lead to much, much larger excursions in insulin. Um, over the course of the day, it was 60% more insulin was secreted. Uh, and, and so in, if, there was, if insulin really did play this dominant role, you would expect that these folks would have been gaining weight and increasing more calories. Yeah. And, and, and so they reported, again, they didn't think they were in a weight loss study. They weren't trying to sign up for a weight loss study. They didn't even know what the primary aim of the study was. We just said, we're going to give you a couple different diets. We're going to measure, you know, metabolic effects. And it was ad libitum, so they could eat as much as they wanted. Yeah, they basically had three meals a day plus snacks. And we basically said, just eat as much or as little as you want. Among the many things that we asked them, we asked them to kind of rate their hunger and their fullness and and, um, and their appetite at various different time points. And they reported no differences between the diets um, in in that regard. Uh, but on the high carb, high insulin promoting diet, they ended up eating almost 700 calories per day less than they did on the ketogenic diet. But the ketogenic diet did not lead people to gain weight, right? They, it didn't lead them to gain body fat or gain weight. So compared to their baseline, um, compared to baseline, it was basically, it was basically, yeah. I mean, I would say that fat mass didn't go down significantly. Their weight did go down. Uh, significantly. In fact, it went down faster on the Likely ketogenic diet. loss. Yeah. So fat-free mass loss went down. In fact, some of that was protein because they had increased nitrogen um, excretion despite eating more nitrogen. And they went Yeah, that was really nit- fascinating. That was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, it's not really a big surprise. Insulin doesn't just have effects on fat cells, right? They has a pleiotropic set of effects. And one of those things is to um, to inhibit the breakdown of protein. Ah. And so it, 
go figure, you eat a diet that reduces insulin by 60%, at least transiently, you'll lose a little bit more protein. So yeah, so our sort of conclusion from that was that, you know, neither of these models of obesity seem to kind of, they really seem to predict the things that you would like them to predict, right? I mean, you have uh, diets that vary in these substantial ways. And, you know, in those cases, we didn't get anybody really gaining weight like they should if they had these extreme high fat, high energy dense diets versus a high carb, high insulin, um, insulin secretion diet. Neither of them led to the predictions, um, but one of them went in the diametrically opposite direction, which was the carb insulin model seemed to kind of fall on its face a little bit in this particular case. So for proponents of the carb insulin model, um, I guess my confusion is if the carb insulin model were true, like as you just mentioned, then the low fat arm that's eating incredibly high carbohydrate with, you know, elevated glucose and elevated insulin. What is their explanation for why they not only didn't gain weight, but why they actually um, and I know this was not a weight loss study, but why they actually ate less calories, especially because I think it's also important to point out that in your study, you actually, so it was such a sophisticated, well-done study. You also looked at palatability. You know, people enjoyed the meals the same. And I remember the menus, it was really, really comparable in both diets. And and you even evaluated. So it's not like the reasons that people just hated the, the high-carb right, diet. Right. So that aside, what is their explanation for why, like if insulin, if that were true and insulin were to make people eat more, then what is the explanation for the, for the eating less? So my understanding is that the basic argument is that we just haven't done the study for long enough to see the effects. Oh, okay. So, you know, and you can always make that argument. Of course. Right? I mean, can't, and you can't really argue against it, right? Because you don't have the data. The, the things that we'd like to push back on is that there are other studies that have lasted longer that aren't as well controlled. So, for example, there was a, a study that David Ludwig did with he um, randomized people to a, a high carb, moderate carb and low carb diets. And his primary outcome was energy expenditure, which we have some disagreements about what they found there and what the assumptions were underlying the method. But he also asked them to report differences in satiety, hunger, and appetite. And in fact, it was the, the, the higher carb group that had reported less appetite than the lower carb group. So it kind of goes along with what we saw. And that was a 15-week or more study. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but on average, I think it was about 15 weeks or so when they did the appetite assessment. Now, again, those are just self-reported appetites. They didn't have you know, actual objective food intake measurements, but it it's at least kind of corroborating what we found. But the the only real way to kind of assess that is to do a study that's longer and see if there is an effect that kicks in longer than two weeks. Does it kick in at four weeks? Does it kick in at six or eight weeks? I, I don't know. I mean, it might happen. The thing I find interesting is that, again, you think about the theoretical basis of the carbohydrate insulin model. It's based on these effects of insulin that are happening at the level of fat tissue, all of which happen within minutes. Minutes, right. Right. Right, minutes. <laughs> so, so clearly these effects on fat tissue are happening on the minute to minute sort of time scale. And so the fact, why aren't these longer term effects playing out at least over two weeks? You know, I don't know the answer. I'm not, ex- not exactly sure what physiological mechanism is being postulated for what has to happen over the longer time frame. The thing that also is interesting is that they're confusing which diet was testing the carbohydrate insulin model. It was the plant-based high-carb insulogenic diet, not the low-carb diet. We're not asking the question about whether or not low-carb is more effective for weight loss. Here we're asking, if you present people with a diet that causes a lot of insulin secretion, do they overeat and gain weight? Um, I guess they could say, well, maybe other factors are playing a role to counter that effect, and maybe it's the high fiber content or whatever, but that kind of proves the point, and it means that insulin isn't the dominant factor. And that's that was exactly my question, because I, of course, heard the argument before about with regards to the ketogenic arm that 
you know, it may take longer than two weeks for people to get into a steady state of fat adaptation, et cetera. So my question wasn't even regarding that. That's why my yeah. question, I guess, for them is more, how do you explain the high carb model if this were, were true? How do you, how do you explain that the high carbohydrates triggering insulin and all of that didn't cause weight gain? And if anything, actually caused, um, a greater calorie deficit than the ketogenic arm and a less of a loss of fat-free mass. And so super interesting. And the reason why this is, I think, also really kind of important for my listeners, so like a lot of, um, especially women uh, my age have messaged in about this, that like a really popular thing now is people wearing continuous glucose monitors that do not have diabetes. And it's based on this model. So it's based on this idea that any carbohydrate will cause um, an increase of insulin and then cause you to be more hungry. And um, I think it's important to kind of discuss that the the nuances of what the, the research has shown in that satiety is really based on multiple variables, not just one. And that we don't have all the answers yet. But I think that when you put together the pieces of evidence and you look at multiple levels of evidence, I do think that we do have some answers to to what helps. And that would be, I think that generally we all agree that, you know, low amount of processed foods and a higher amount of whole foods is beneficial and dietary fiber can be beneficial also. But this idea that it's being marketed, that this model that your research has kind of demonstrated pretty clearly isn't the actual way in which obesity works for the majority of people with regards to, you know, um, the fear mongering that's out there now about for bananas or apples, even, for example, um, has turned into a marketing for continuous glucose monitoring, you know, everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, again, our studies are kind of designed to detect certain things. And, and we're also, we had continuous glucose monitors on our participants as well. And yeah, clearly the the high carb diet caused much larger swings in glucose and, and much larger swings in insulin, which was measured separately. What those things did not seem to have the dominant effect on appetite. Whether or not they have other deleterious consequences, we didn't assess. They met, right. right? I mean, some people will argue that these big swings in glucose are problematic. I don't think the data is really all that convincing that that's true. Yeah, so I, I've looked into this deeply, and there's no research that shows that glucose variability uh, with regards to cardiovascular risk or any risk in general in someone with out diabetes has any harm, postprandial normal glucose variability. So I think one of the issues is when we pathologize something that's normal. So eating a banana, your glucose raises and you, you have a spike of insulin and this is a normal bodily process. And we don't have any data at this time to show us that that's harmful. Right. I mean, I think your, your point is, is that we have some speculation based on some sort of mechanistic theory about why that should be harmful. You know, maybe taking folks with diabetes and saying, well, look, glucose variability does seem to be harmful in that context, and therefore it should be harmful in other contexts. Well, that's a a leap. We don't really have the evidence for that. Um, But we also don't have the evidence necessarily to say that one method is, you know, is moderating glucose really something that we should be doing? We don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, we don't have the data to to suggest that that that's going to be beneficial or not. So I think that again, what you get is people who sort of latch onto some theory about the way that things should work that sounds sciency, and they give you a tool to kind of measure it. You know, they don't really consider what the logical consequences of that tool are, and sometimes they might be deleterious. Um, so, for example, is the logical consequence of moderating your glucose levels that we should just basically be tube feeding everybody no. constantly 24 hours a day. I mean, <laughs> that, that's going to keep glucose really stable. Oh, right? my God. Mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, no one is thinking that, but that if that is your only metric of what's going to be beneficial for you, then to the exclusion of all other factors, then this is kind of where we end up. And I think this is, you know, for your listeners, you know, you'll hear a lot of very scientific sounding theories about 
the way the body works, what causes harm, what's beneficial. And, you know, there are a few scientists who are kind of willing to kind of put their necks out and say, well, let's test how this theory really works in real people. And can we design a test where we can actually see if it's working the way this theory says it works? But many, many more people are willing to just kind of say, yeah, we have a little bit of data that seems to support this idea. And therefore, we're going to kind of go with it and we're going to write a bunch of books or we're going to kind of design a program or hook you up to some device, which is going to kind of tell you how to eat based on this overall theory and that you are you know, a special snowflake and you're going to respond differently than everybody else. And we know how to actually treat you because we've got the secret sauce of how to figure that out. Always um, secret sauce. I mean, you just kind of have to step back and think about what would the study have been that, that is really supporting all of these claims, right? I mean, what would you have to have done in order to kind of demonstrate the things that these people are claiming to be true of their program? I mean, I would think that your study would have shown. <laughs> well, I think the point is, is that the, the amount of evidence that you would have to have in order to justify yeah. a lot of these claims is immense and likely not to be not to be present, right? And And if you can kind of teach your listeners to kind of evaluate and think of all of these things with a skeptical viewpoint, even things that are, that are sort of, you know, the vast majority of people believe are, are true. Just to ask that question, okay, how do we know that's true? What, what kind of study would I have had to have seen in order to demonstrate that? Am I getting evidence from a lot of different kinds of studies um, that all point in the same direction? Those are the kinds of questions you need to ask in order to kind of evaluate whether or not someone's trying to sell you on something that's based on, you know, sciencey sounding theory versus something that's well established. I couldn't agree more. I love that. That is so well said. I think that uh, we talk a lot about levels of evidence and, um, you know, you make it clear that, you know, this study, especially your keto versus um, low fat plant based study wasn't a weight loss study. It was two weeks. It was in a metabolic ward. It was well controlled. And so you acknowledge the limitations of that can't extrapolate past two weeks, et cetera. You know, so whenever we talk about nutrition recommendations, nutrition science in general, I think a big emphasis is that looking at multiple levels of evidence. So whether we're looking at, you know, epidemiology does have its place because you're looking at um, longer outcomes with um, individuals and you're also looking at it in a less controlled manner because people can't live in a metabolic ward forever. So I'm going to have DD on for an episode to talk about that. And then, you know, you look at just different and then you look at randomized controlled trials that may be uh, a year or two years and looking at different outcomes there. And so you're synthesizing all the levels of evidence. So one thing I, I want to, you know, emphasize is like with this, you know, rumor that all glucose is bad for you and a postprandial rise in glucose is going to cause you to be super hungry and, you know, have this insulin release is that at least with the data we have to date, when you combine multiple levels of evidence, if you eat a banana, we don't have data that shows eating more fruits and more vegetables is harmful for you. We have the opposite. We have lots of epidemiological data that shows us eating more fruits and vegetables are, uh, are healthy for you. We have a lot of um, randomized controlled trial data with hard outcomes that shows us eating more fruits and vegetables can reduce risk of various diseases, including cardiovascular disease. And then we have short-term studies like Kevin's metabolic ward study that showed us that a high-carb, low-fat plant-based diet eating that did not cause individuals to eat more. It didn't cause them to gain weight. If anything, they actually had more of a calorie deficit. So I think synthesizing all the levels of evidence, you can kind of say, okay, so I'm you know, safe to eat fruit without worrying about my glucose spiking if you like fruit. If you don't like fruit, that's fine too. Right, right. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's amazing how much stress people have about this stuff, right? It's so difficult that to hear like the people who are probably the most stressed out about food are also the ones who are being most thoughtful about it. And, um, you know, it kind of it raises, you know, that other study that you kind of alluded to where we were just kind of trying to say, look, the people who kind of are proponents of both of these kinds of extreme, relatively extreme diets, very, very low in fat or very, very low in carb, they have a lot of things in common. Yes. And if they just focused on the things that they had in common, maybe we'd have a lot less confusion. Um, and that was, you, you mentioned it, they are all typically very low in ultra-processed foods. Is that something that is 
really driving a lot of the problems here. I mean, you can make ultra-processed, low-fat foods. You can make like the snack wells example that we talked about before. You can yes. make ultra-processed, yes. low-carb foods. You see those keto things out there on the market now. What is it about the foods in our food environment that that drive us to consume excess calories and gain weight and have a lot of the other deleterious health consequences? I mean, the only study that we've done where people have actually spontaneously gained weight is the study where we actually gave people, again, ad libitum, you could eat however much or little they wanted, a diet that was very high in ultra-processed foods and one that didn't have any ultra-processed foods. And the diet on ultra-processed foods, people over-consume calories, they gain body fat, they gain weight. The same people, when they were exposed to a diet that matched for carbs and fat and sugar and sodium and all these other nutrients of concern, spontaneously lost weight, spontaneously lost body fat, ate many fewer calories. It seems like what a lot of people do when they go on these different kinds of diets and achieve success, they cut out ultra-processed foods. Now, the question is, what is it about ultra-processed foods that causes people to overeat and gain weight and have potentially deleterious health consequences that are independent of weight changes? And the answer is, we don't know. We got lots of theories I could probably sell 20 books about the the individual individual, uh, theory about the microbiome that's being offered or the emulsifiers or the artificial sweeteners or the, you know, it's just a huge number of potential factors that could be playing a role. And and the data for any individual one of them is very limited. And so we we need more studies to figure out what it is about those kinds of foods that causes... Uh, people to overconsume calories. Yeah. But it seems pretty consistent. And the, the data seems to be there that, you know, high levels of ultra processed foods in the food environment, as well as in individual intake, self reported in these epidemiological um, cohort studies, as well as in our randomized control trial, all seem to point in more or less the same direction. The question is why and how? Absolutely. That's such a great point. So there is a lot that. That you like you mentioned in two of the extreme, you know, diet tribes that there there is an agreement on. I also think that kind of underestimated or maybe just undervalued or underappreciated and not studied as much is the psychological factor that goes into it. So I think a lot of times, um, if you go on a super low, low, low fat plant based diet versus someone that goes on a super high fat keto diet. They actually share a lot of the patients I see share a lot of similarities in the fact that, you know, there's like some comfort in rules that I think that, you know, you follow these rules and that, you know, um, when you go out, you're essentially it's easier because you can just say no to X, Y or Z because it doesn't fall into this dietary plan. So it may help them to achieve caloric restriction in this manner. And I think it, it can kind of make things easier. And also people find community in these groups. And I think there's a, a huge factor there too. So I think the psychological aspects would be interesting to be studied as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, that's the, the tribal aspect is particularly fascinating, right? You automatically become a member of this tribe of people who now connect with each other on social media and have your little conferences and get togethers and cruises and all of these <laughs> other sorts of things kind of all kind of centered around this way of eating. And, you know, I, I haven't been invited to any any low carb conferences, but I've definitely been invited to the plant based <laughs> kind of vegan conferences. And you know, I don't know how many times I've had people, you know, physicians who just are total believers in this and basically are like, you know, I couldn't disagree more. You know, there's this is clearly the best way to do things. And, you know, all of my patients are successful. And I always ask, well, what about the patients that you don't see anymore? Exactly. Because they left. You have selection bias. Selection and, bias. You know, you have a group of people who are kind of joined this community, who kind of go to these conferences and and um, adhere to this lifestyle and have all of these things that support them. It's not even clear to me, you know, and, you know, things like uh, Christopher Gardner's Diet Fits trial, which was one of those examples where, you know, people are randomized to low carb versus low fat diets for weight loss. And his goal was to see if, different degrees of insulin secretion at baseline predicted whether or not you do better on a low carb versus a low fat diet. And it didn't, by the way, but, (laughs) and there was no, no winner in that study either. The people basically, you know, eliminated 
junk food from their diets and and lost weight, but there was a huge variability, right? Some people were super successful on the low fat diet. Some people were super successful on the low carb diet. Um, there's this underlying assumption that the reason why is some sort of complex biological trait relating the carbs and the fat to that person's genetics or something like that. But it could be that if that person had been randomized instead to the alternate diet, they would have done equally well. We don't even know. We don't even know. Not. There's an interaction between carbs and fat in the diet and the pe people who are most successful in those diets. Maybe the people who are most successful had the right support system at home, had the kind of wherewithal to change their lifestyle. They had you know, the ability to kind of spend the time to prepare those meals. They didn't have the pressures of you know, three kids that wanted frozen pizza that night that, that weren't going through a divorce or a career change. You know, Absolutely. my bet is it's at least as important, these social constructs that support people's lifestyle changes as opposed to the biology. I think it's the most important. That would be my yeah. my hypothesis. I think the social okay. constructs are so important. I think that they're huge. In my tiny anecdotal experience with patients in this uh, scenario, I think the social constructs are huge. I think we need more research in the in this space. But I mean, then again, also, we have so many, there's so much fascinating stuff emerging now with GLP-1 receptor agonists and what we're seeing with regards to satiety and, and diet um, in a more neurohormonal way rather than just focused on insulin, but looking at not being so myopic with the view and looking at kind of the totality of there's so many hormones that we haven't even discovered yet, I'm sure. Right. No, it's, it's, it's very complicated. It's clearly you know, it's a it's a very sophisticated physiological system. The you know the nervous system. There was a paper that came out last year um, suggesting that you know essentially the nervous system evolved to basically seek out food. Yeah, <laughs> that's like sense. in the most amazing kind of uh, level. It's like that was what the nervous system was designed to do at first, and then we you know got good at other things, I guess. But yeah, so I mean, it's incredibly complicated. Uh, what regulates body weight, what controls food intake, what controls energy expenditure. We're beginning to understand more and more of the genetics of that, more and more um, signals from within the body. I think that the most important sort of open questions are, you know, how do changes in our food environment interact with that internal system in order to control food intake and regulate body weight? We're starting to understand that at the basic neuroscience level with um, various mouse models and exposing mice to different kinds of, of foods and seeing how they change you know levels of dopamine in different places how they affect um, different neurons in the hypothalamus differently how parts of the brain that were normally thought to regulate hedonics uh, separately from homeostasis actually feed back to homeostatic circuits in the brain and may regulate you know control where you're where your body weight is regulated. So that interaction between our food environment, which has obviously changed dramatically over the past, you know, several decades to give rise to a lot of the changes in, in, in obesity rates that we're seeing in industrialized countries. How is that playing out at the level of the neurobiology of, of eating behavior is, I think, you know, some of the most important open questions that we need to answer. Fascinating. And I have one last question for you. Okay. Because this has just been so educational. This is just a master class in metabolism, carbs versus fat, everything with, with Kevin Hall. This is amazing. My last question for you about ultra-processed food. So um, do you think that the NOVA criteria, I find that it's quite limited in its classification of processing. And do you think that there needs to be kind of a new processing classification or something that can kind of differentiate between different kinds of processed foods? Yeah, I mean, I, I started that study because I thought the NOVA classification system and this way of thinking about food was complete bullshit. <laughs> right? So <laughs> I, I started that study because, you know, when I first heard about it, you know, it's called nutrition science for a reason. It's about nutrients. It's about breaking foods out into their constituent parts and understanding how they interact in the body. I'm a, like I said, I'm a physicist, sort of reductionist by training. I like to break things down and understand how they work. And so here comes this group of people who basically say, oh, carbs, not important. Fat, not important. Saturated fat, I don't care about that. It's really just about the extent and purpose of processing the food. 
what, what the hell are you talking about? Right? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And then I'm like, okay, well, what is it about these so-called ultra-processed foods that give rise to all of these problems? And particularly, why do people, you know, eat them in excess and cause weight gain? And the answer I got was, well, they're high in salt and sugar and fat, and they're low in fiber. I'm like, well, you just named a bunch of nutrients. You can't have it both ways, right? Is it the nutrients or is it something else? So it's a long-winded answer to say that, you know, I thought that our study was going to prove that there's nothing special about ultra-processed foods, that it's really about the salt, the sugar, the fat, and the fiber, which is why we matched those two diets for those things. I thought we were going to see no difference in energy intake, and I was wrong. So there is something about them that's beyond the salt, sugar, fat, and fiber. What it is, we don't know, but it raises the point of that you're making, which is it's a very broad definition. There's so many different kinds of food that end up getting lumped into this category that, you know, as far as we know, there's no real reason to consider them bad for us, right? Question um, for you. Yeah. Did you control in that study for palatability as well? So people reported the that they re, that the diets were equally palatable okay so because i just my own personal opinion yeah. i think processed foods taste so much better which is why I try, which is why i try not to eat them they're just like you know it's just yeah, yeah no i mean I, again we have lots of different potential yeah. um potential mechanisms here i mean people ate the foods much more quickly so maybe they're eating by the time they've actually like the they are more energy dense, but not because they're different in fat content, but because water has water. been extracted from water, the, so, yeah. so they're concentrated. So there's a lot of things that are different that are not nutrient based. They're mm. kind of food form, food matrix, um, as well as just how the, the sensory properties, how they're eaten. There's lots of different things that are different that are not nutrient based that clearly play an important role. But you're right. When you kind of Again, ultra-processed foods are not based on those mechanisms. They're not based on those biological attributes of, you know, that they happen to have a high energy density, right. that they have to have a certain threshold for, um, you know, for, for how quickly they're eaten on average. Or, but those are not the definitions. The definitions are very much in line with, you know, are they using processes or ingredients that are not used in home kitchens and those kinds of things are made from, you know, very little whole foods are kind of obviously present that they're made from these cheap industrial sources of calories. Um, Those are the definitions. And so, again, at the end of the day, you've got this wide category of foods, which have a whole bunch of positive attributes, right? They are, as you said, they're tasty, they're cheap, they're convenient. They're shelf-stable. They're relatively safe from a microbiological perspective, right? You don't see a lot of recalls on Oreo cookies for salmonella poisoning, right? It's just, it's just so true. It's just, it's just so uh, you true. don't need a lot of equipment to prepare them, right? Yeah. You don't, you know, all you really need is a microwave and you don't need so a true. lot of skill to prepare them. Um, and they don't take a lot of time. And they pretty much appeal to almost everybody. So feeding a large family cheaply, without the complaints of why do I have broccoli on my plate and why is it touching my carrots? It's not a, <laughs> you know, not a complaint that you often hear. Um, so all of these pos- not to mention the fact that, you know, you don't have to have one adult member of your household tied at home, making meals every mm-hmm. day and prepping them. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch of positive things. And mm-hmm. so if we could understand what are the deleterious mechanisms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, can we actually do something to uh, address those mechanisms as opposed to, you know, basically demonizing a huge category of foods right. that have all of these positive attributes? My bet is that we should actually try to figure out what's what's the real problem with them. Totally. Um, and and if we can figure that out, then maybe we can make better versions. Absolutely. That will, that will actually have a lot of this, still retain a lot of the positive attributes while addressing the negative health consequences. Absolutely. That was so well said. Thank you so much for explaining that. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for today. This was the best. I just, I can't sing your phrases enough. I think you are very humble, but I think you are the best thing to ever happen to nutrition science. And I just want you to know from a personal standpoint, I appreciate being friends with you. I've learned so much from you over the last few years. 
You have definitely broadened my view on diets and you're just a truly dietary agnostic individual. So if anyone wants to follow someone that really has no dog in this fight, I know everyone has some bias on some level, but when it comes to it, I personally think you have the least bias. You really are a true scientist. You're truly looking for the answers, no matter what the hypothesis is. So I think you're a great person for people to follow on social media because your educational value is just is through the roof. So tell everyone where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, so it's uh, Kevin H PhD, and uh, I think there's a underscore there somewhere between <laughs> the H and PhD. So yeah, and we're gonna link to it in our uh, show notes. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kevin. Yeah, that was and thanks great. for joining thanks. us. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunk next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.